following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Before we dive into the sermon for the morning, firstly, I think this is still happening, we're going to have a reading. Mm -hmm. A reading, now this is going to be a little bit different, because uh, this morning we are in Revelation 18, and the band that has just been leading us in worship are now going to come and do something different. They are going to lead us in a reading of Scripture, a multi-voice reading of Scripture. And then straight after that, we're going to have a video clip to set the scene for what we're talking about this morning. It's a clip from the movie A Christmas Carol which might seem like it's got absolutely no relevance to Revelation 18, uh, but all will become clear. And uh, hopefully you'll be able to see a bit of that. There is a bit of glare on the screen this morning, but we'll play that straight after the, uh, the reading and then dive into the message. So first, Revelation 18. Thank you, Ben. So that was, uh, the movie, of course, is based on the Charles Dickens book, A Christmas Carol. And Ebenezer Scrooge is uh, visited by the ghosts of Christmas past and present and future, and that, of course, was the ghost of Christmas future, showing him his own, uh, his own death, his own demise, taking him to his gravesite, where he can see uh, that he dies alone, where he dies without friends, without companions. He dies really a life of, of, of hopelessness. And then seeing that uh, he dies actually on Christmas Day, Ebenezer Scrooge cries out to the Spirit for another chance, for a chance to change his life. He's confronted by this awful vision of his own demise. And he says, Spirit, show me that I can change these shadows you've shown me, change them by an altered life. That, that vision that he gets of his destruction jolts him into wanting to be a different person wanting to be a changed man, and he receives that chance. And, of course, that's the end of the movie, that he becomes a transformed person because of the, um, the vision that he's had from the three spirits. And in some ways, this chapter in Revelation 18 is a bit like that. But what we see in this chapter, it's pretty grim and it's pretty dark. We see it's like a, it's like a funeral service, really, for Babylon, the city of Babylon, and as we saw last week in Revelation 17, the city of Babylon represents the city of Rome. So Babylon is used as a symbol of the city of Rome, Babylon being the great city that oppressed God's people in the Old Testament, Rome being the great city that oppresses God's people in the New Testament. So it's a good symbol to use. Whenever you see the word Babylon in Revelation, you can just write beside it the word Rome. That's who John's talking about. And he shows us here in this extended depiction, in this graphic portrayal, he shows us Rome's demise, its destruction, its absolute and utter desolation. But the point of him doing that is not just so that we would rejoice over Rome's downfall, it's so that we would live an altered life. It's so that we would be jolted by this awful vision into being transformed people. There's something here that should shock us into reality and into some degree of transformation in the way that we live and act within the world. So I think it's important to say up front here with Revelation 18 that this is not supposed to be taken as a literal picture of Rome's conquest. Uh, it's easy to read it that way, but as with so much of Revelation, this is not intended to be read as a history textbook 
either of the past or of the future. So don't go to Revelation 18 and try and find details of exactly how the city of Rome comes to its miserable end. Of course, Rome was eventually conquered. It was eventually ransacked. That happened in the 4th and 5th centuries, in fact, several times over. But that's not the point of this chapter. In fact, in Revelation 18, we're not even told who it is that conquers Rome. We're not even told which army, which tribe, which nation comes and conquers the city, and that's deliberate because the point is that it's God who judges her. The point is that God is bringing this destruction upon the city of Rome. Verse 8 says, She will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. That's the point. God is the agent behind this chapter. He is the one bringing the devastation, bringing the destruction upon the city. It's all attributed to him. And so we hear this awful uh, picture of Rome as a desolate city. You think of Rome as it was in John's day, all its glory, all its splendor, all its, its opulence. And here in the first part of the chapter, it's just described as an abandoned city, as a desolate city. It's been absolutely abandoned by every human being, and now it's just become a place where there are unclean birds and animals and even demons, John says. It's like a virtual tour through an abandoned and forgotten city. And then a series of woes go up. We hear these woes from the, the, the kings of the earth, and then a woe from the merchants of the earth, and then a woe from the, the ship captains and the sailors of the earth, all those who have been affected by Rome's demise. They all cry out. And then finally we hear this angel picking up a huge boulder, throwing it into the sea and announcing the finality of Rome's destruction, that Rome is gone, Babylon has been des destroyed, and uh, God's judgment is final. The picture that all this is supposed to be giving us is not of Rome's literal destruction, it's of God's judgment upon Rome and upon any empire that sets itself up against God. In some sense, this description of Rome's devastation is something that already happened because it's seen from the perspective of Jesus' death and resurrection. It's seen from the perspective of Jesus on the cross defeating every principality, every power, every kingdom that sets itself up against God. Jesus brought those powers to nothing on the cross. He, he gutted Rome of its power. So even in John's day, though Rome was alive and well, uh, from the vantage point of heaven, Rome was a city without real power, without real authority, without any real claim to greatness, and certainly not divinity, because Jesus had already brought down every rival empire to the reign of God. And in some sense, the picture is future, because it shows us the future judgment that God will bring on every empire, every ideology, every city, every system that resists and opposes his rule. The victory that Jesus won on the cross is going to be finalized in the new creation when God acts as judge and brings his reign directly to the earth and eradicates all evil and all opposing forces. So the imagery works backwards as well as forwards. It gives us a picture of Rome's spiritual destruction in the past and the ultimate destruction of the empire in the future. And the reason that God seems to judge Rome in this passage is all related to one thing, one particular part of Rome's identity, and that is its luxury. That word luxury is used several times in the chapter. The merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Rome was a city of wealth. It was a city of means. It was a city of considerable influence. It was an opulent city, and it flaunted it. The glittering gold and the pearls, 
all of the wealth, its buildings, its architecture, the lifestyles of its rich and famous. Rome was a city. It had a lot of money, and it had a seemingly insatiable appetite for consumable goods, for material things, all these goods and services of the world that all found their way to Rome, the capital city, the city at the heart of the empire. The lifestyles of its elite were being propped up with all manner of luxury goods. And that seems to be the reason in this chapter that God is bringing his judgment against Rome because of her luxury and because of her greed. There's a mountain just outside the city of Rome today called Monte Testaccio. It's not a natural mountain. It's, it's, it's actually a mountain that is made entirely of little pieces of pottery, little pieces of broken pottery that cover about 20,000 square meters now, apparently larger in ancient times. The whole thing, even the paths leading up to the top of Monte Testaccio, all broken pottery, they all come from containers that in the first century were called amphorae. These containers held anything from, from spices to oil to wine, sauces, any kind of consumable commodities. And when they were used, the pottery containers were thrown away and they were smashed and they found their way to Monte Testaccio. And they ended up in this huge big rubbish dump outside the city. The Oxford Archaeological Guide to Rome says this of Monte Testaccio. It symbolizes the consumer city swallowing the produce of its mighty empire in a one-way trade, throwing away the empties in a heap to one side. That's what Rome was like. And in case you think that's just a modern interpretation of the city of Rome, listen to this by the philosopher Seneca who wrote in the first century, he was actually a counselor to Emperor Nero in the middle of the first century. So writing right at the time that Revelation was written, talking of the empire of Rome, he says, they outdo the hugest and most voracious animals in greed, riches whose luxury overleaps the bounds of an empire that already stirs too much envy. Why do you pile riches on riches? An exhibition all too lavish is made of the spoils of conquered nations. So even Seneca, who was apparently loyal to Rome, recognizes the incredible greed of this empire. And John, the apostle John, you imagine him sitting on the island of Patmos. Patmos was beside a shipping lane. So he would have been able to look out and see these huge cargo ships all making their way to Rome with all manner of goods, all manner of consumables on board. And with great precision, John notes what many of these consumables would have been in chapter 12, uh, verse 11 of Revelation 18. And verse 12, cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple silk, scarlet cloth, citron wood and articles of every kind made of ivory and costly wood and bronze and iron and marble and cinnamon and spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, olive oil, flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, carriages, human beings, sold as slaves. The list goes on and on and on. You just get this idea that everything is just all flowing towards Rome. And scholars who have looked at this list have figured out that some of these products in here come from as far away as India, China, Africa, Armenia, Arabia. This was an international trade. No wonder John says the merchants of the earth will weep. Rome was an international importer of goods and services. And everything was heading one way, to the great city, to the great Babylon. Well, it's not hard, is it, to see some of the connections to our own lives. If you don't think Revelation is relevant for today, just spend some time in Revelation 18. You can just see these incredible striking connections between the first century empire of Rome, the greedy city, and the 21st century empire of consumerism that we live in today. The specifics might be different, but the description is more or less the same. Listen to some of these statistics. 
This year, 2012, luxury goods sales are estimated to top $370 billion worldwide. Luxury goods market includes designer handbags, clothes, jewellery, watches, fine wine, champagne and spirits. The global cosmetics and perfume industry turns over approximately $196 billion annually. In 2005, the top 10 beer-drinking countries in the world drank a combined total of 154 trillion litres of beer. In 2009, that's the latest figure I could find on this, the world consumed 300 million tonnes of plastic, 80% of which ended up in a landfill. And each year, New Zealand consumes an average of 23 litres of ice cream per person. Well, that's impressive, isn't it? I don't know whether you've had your 23 litres yet this year. It's already October. You better get cracking. Now, let me say, there's nothing wrong with ice cream. There's nothing wrong. I love ice cream. There's nothing wrong with working for Tip Top. There's nothing wrong with any of those products or any of those services or consumables. But it is the cumulative picture that this builds of the culture in which we live, which is disconcerting, just as with Rome. It's not that money or individual commodities are bad. It's the cumulative picture of the culture in which we live and the forces that are at work in that culture that should give us some unease. Because you can try and identify Babylon with anything and anyone out there you like, but the reality is we are living in Babylon. We are living in Babylon today. You don't have to look far. We're living in the greedy city. We're living in the greedy empire. What was said of Monte Testaccio could just as easily be said of us today. Countries and cultures with an insatiable appetite for things, a one-way trade, although today it's two-way, of course, but a one-way trade, constantly consuming, constantly acquiring, constantly stockpiling. We live in a consumptive society. Some would say hyper-consumptive. We live in, a, in an acquisitive society, constantly thirsting after more things and the next thing and the better thing. And you wonder, when archaeologists pour over the remains and the ruins of 21st century cities in a couple of thousand years' time, as they do today with the ancient city of Rome, what will they find? And what will they see that symbolizes the values and the priorities of our culture and our cities? What will be our Monte Testaccio? Maybe it'll be the huge landfills outside our cities where we discard and dispose and do away with things in a symbol of a disposable culture. We're all living in Babylon today. And the thing is, none of us really feel greedy, do we? None of us are honestly, I mean, you can look at that list of goods in Revelation 18. None of us are going after these kinds of luxury lifestyles. None of us, or not many of us, are intentionally trying to be greedy. We're not trying to stockpile. In fact, we feel most of the time, we feel like we're just getting by. We feel like we're just making ends meet. We live in a country with high costs of living. House prices are crazy. Rent prices are crazy. Power prices. Everything is is astronomically expensive. And most of the time, you and I just feel like we are barely making it. Just keeping our heads above water. It's a struggle just to get the mortgage or the rent paid. Just to get a decent, reasonable standard of living. To look after our families and have a roof over our head and just have have a decent lifestyle. We are just coping. And many of us are battling. So we don't feel like we're being greedy. And in many senses, we're not. We are simply seeking to look after our families and make the best life that we can for ourselves. But we have to be aware of the culture in which we live and the forces that subtly work away on us in a culture of consumerism such as we live in. Forces that are subtle, forces that are often operating under the radar of our conscious existence, 
but forces that can very easily compromise our allegiance to Christ and draw us away from him and towards other gods. See, one of the things that consumerism will do is constantly keep us in a state of anxiety. I would say that anxiety is the, is the primary experience within a consumptive culture, that we are constantly anxious. We're anxious about payments that we've got to make. We're anxious about the fact that we don't have enough money and we don't have the right stuff or the next thing. And the reason is because our primary reference point is one another. So your primary reference point, you benchmark yourself off your neighbors or you benchmark yourself off people in your own social circle. You know, you go to dinner at someone's house, a friend's house, and they have a lovely lounge suite and they've got a great, lovely rug on the floor, awesome artwork on the walls, their furnishings are beautiful, huge big dining room table. It's really, really nice. And you come home and what's the first thing you notice? Your carpet looks shabby. You notice the paint chips in the walls. You don't have any art on your walls. Your dining room table's tiny. You can barely fit in the rooms anymore. It was fine yesterday. Why not today? Because you've been in the heavenly throne room. And you've seen glory. And now nothing else is going to be good enough. You benchmark yourself against your neighbor, you're going to be in trouble. Or you're going to work really, really hard so you can make sure that you're one notch above your neighbor. However you manage to be able to play the game, we constantly reference off each other and it leads us to anxiety. If you can't put up on Facebook cool travel photos of the latest place that you've been, which all your friends are doing, it goes to the heart of your sense of self-identity and self-worth. You feel like you're being a bit left behind. You're, bit, you're missing out. You're not quite keeping pace. And this leads us to anxiety. The other reason we feel anxious is because of the way that products and services are marketed to us. We often go to farmers or the warehouse, take Josh there, and give him a little wander through the toy section. It's amazing how this works with kids. And he loves playing with the toys, press a few buttons and listen to some of the sounds and so on. But you pick up these toys for kids and the marketers are cunning. When you read the back of these products, they don't just tell you how much fun your child's going to have with the product. They tell you what kind of intellectual development this product is going to help your child with. The ways in which this will lead to the well-being of your child emotionally, intellectually, physically. So if you pick up, for example, Thomas the Tank Engine train set, on the back, it's going to tell you something like, this train set is going to lead to better hand-eye coordination. It's going to incre increase your child's social skills. They learn to play with others. Uh, it's going to enhance their intellectual understanding of cause and effect relationships, all these things. So now I'm thinking, Thomas is going to be essential for my child's future growth and development. I don't want him to be uncoordinated. I don't want him to be antisocial. I don't want him not to understand cause and effect. We've got to buy Thomas. We've got to get Thomas now or else my, my child's growth will be stunted in every way. You see how this works. And now anxiety is created within me. Anxiety that lasts until that precious moment when I make a transaction and purchase Thomas. You see how the process works. Of course, the irony of all this is that the anxiety never really goes away. It might subside for a while, but sooner or later I make another trip to farmers and I realize there's an extension train track. And now there's the post office train track and there's a bridge that I've got to have and it never really ends because you have a product but soon there's something better. There's a replacement or there's an upgrade. There is always the next. There is always the next thing. The bigger, the better, the faster, the smaller, the more fashionable. The thing that you just simply don't have, it's the next thing. And so anxiety enters again until you then go out and buy the next product. I don't know whether you've seen the ad for the, the Samsung Galaxy X3 phone. You know, what the, you know what the tagline is, the slogan? The next big thing is already here. 
See, they know. The next big thing, and the ad is all about these people that have another phone, maybe a lesser model of a Samsung or another brand, and they just feel left out because another crowd has got the next big thing. And these are the feelings that consumerism instills within us, that we don't have yet the next big thing and we need to go out and buy it. Now, again, nothing wrong with buying a Samsung phone, nothing wrong with these products in and of themselves, but understand the forces. Understand the forces that woo us and that get a hold in our heart. And can you see the way this actually compromises our allegiance ultimately to Jesus? We start running off after all these other things. Our primary identity becomes consumers. That's who we are. No longer children of God, consumers thinking and acting and interpreting the world through the whole lens of consumption. We import that, by the way, into church. There's a whole other sermon on religious consumerism, but it happens there too because our primary identity in an acquisitive culture is that of the consumer. It's not just something we do anymore. Now it's who we are. These forces can really do damage on our hearts. And while the differences are there between Rome and our own day, there are also incredible similarities. And in both cases... Revelation 18 is a warning that God will judge, that the empires of consumerism are not going to last forever. One day they all become Monte Testaccio. They all become a massive trash heap and an icon to our own greed and insatiable appetites. One day the stuff fades away, gets thrown out, comes to an end. One day we cannot take the money with us. Despite all of its glitz and its glamour and its glory, the empires of consumerism will not, will not last And God stands ready to judge them, not just judge individuals, not just judge groups, but judge even cities, we hear, even empires, ideologies and systems, Because not because he's anti-money. We've got to get that thought out of our head. God's not anti-money. He's not anti-business. He's not anti-capitalism. What God is displeased with is when his own claim to lordship over our lives is displaced by something else. When our culture of consumption and acquisition becomes idolatry and our hearts are drawn away from Christ. And we feel this every day in small ways. More of our time drawn into figuring out how we can get more money, how we can get this level of income and maybe that, and then if we can get to this, then eventually we'll be able to get to this. It draws more of our emotional and mental energy, more of our passion More of ourselves are drawn into our stuff. More of our time is spent in anxiety. This is what keeps us up at night, trying to figure out how we can keep moving forward. Not because we feel greedy, because we feel anxious. But our hearts are drawn that way and further and further away from an undivided allegiance to God and a priority of seeking first His kingdom and His righteousness and trusting that these other things will be added to us as well. That gets left behind in the pursuit of the next thing and more and more money. It becomes a God. That's why Jesus condemned it. Not money per se, but the love of money and the worship of money and stuff. And that's why God stands ready to judge this empire of consumerism. The other reason that God brings judgment in this situation is because empires of consumerism tend to allow a huge disparity to open up between rich and poor. It happened in John's day. Look at this list in verse 12. You notice that after all of these items are mentioned, what's last on the list? In verse 13, human beings sold as slaves. 
Isn't that amazing that he puts that last? He's making a point very subtly, very pointedly though. Not only are human lives just listed as another commodity here, they're listed last. After cinnamon, after wood, after oil, after even the animals, last on the list come human beings. And that's exactly how Rome and the empire operated. It was an empire built on the backs of slaves. If you're living in the first century, life without slavery, the institution of slavery, is absolutely unthinkable. It's unimaginable. There were millions of slaves through the Roman Empire. And to be fair, they weren't all treated horribly. Many of them had significant responsibility. But if you imagine a social ladder, they were absolutely the last rung. In fact, they were the ground at the bottom of the ladder, the dirt underneath the ladder. That's what slaves were. So all of this luxury, all of this excess that Rome is accused of having really found its way towards a very few people. All of these goods, all of these products, all of these commodities, they ended up in the hands of a very few people in Rome and propped up the lifestyles of Rome's elite. And again, you can see such striking parallels to our own world today. Just listen to a few more statistics. If your family owns one car, just one car, you're in the richest 10% of the world's population. If you can go home, turn on a tap and get clean drinking water, you're better off than a billion people in the world. If you have electricity at your house, you're better off than 1.6 billion people in the world. If your kids have any kind of education at all, even just primary education, they're more privileged than 121 million kids in the world. And 1.4 billion people still live below the poverty line of $2.25, New Zealand, $2.25 per day. So this is the world in which we live, and I wonder what Jesus would say about this. I wonder what Jesus would say to us. I wonder what Jesus would do about this. I wonder what would happen if we stopped making our primary reference point our neighbors or our own social circle and made our reference point the 1.4 billion hungry neighbors that we've got in the world. What would happen if we started? Because the empire of consumerism doesn't really want us to dwell on this stuff. Consumerism wants us to keep spending at a rapid rate, to keep acquiring the next thing and to constantly feel anxious and dissatisfied with what we have. But if we open our eyes and look at this more globally, we may be driven to realize that we are the rich minority, regardless of whether we feel like we are just battling to stay afloat. We are, in all seriousness, the rich minority. We are Babylon. And we have to reflect on that and contend with that in our own culture. Now, this is not to try and guilt trip us and condemn us. I know those feelings flood in and we feel overwhelmed and what can I do and I feel terrible just for going having a coffee at Columbus. That's not the point. It's not the point to just stop us spending and just go and give every cent of money away. But how should we respond? How should we respond to all this given that we are Babylon and that we live in a world with a, starking, a stark disparity of wealth between rich and poor? Well, God gives us away. He says in verse 4, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. Come out of her. That call is a prophetic call that goes right back to Isaiah and Jeremiah in the Old Testament, where they instructed the people of God to come out of Babylon. Come out of her, my people. Be ye separate, as the King James has it. Separate yourselves from these idolatrous and pagan and ungodly nations. Now, the question is, what does that mean? To come out of her, to come out of Rome, to come out of Babylon. It was, is God saying, pack your bags? Is John saying, pack up all your stuff and move house? Move outside the Roman Empire? Go and live in Arabia? 
go and live somewhere else? Is that really going to solve the problem? I don't think this is literally a command to relocate ourselves physically. This is a figurative expression meaning to separate ourselves from the spirit of the age, meaning to separate ourselves from the God that consumerism becomes. It's not a call for us to physically live in a different place. It's a call to be different people within the empire that we find ourselves. It's a call to model a different way of living, a different way of being human, a different allegiance to a different Lord in a different kingdom, even while you're living right in the heart of Babylon. Now, that takes some creativity. But this is our commandment. Because we are citizens of two worlds. We're living in Babylon. We're living within the consumer world. That's just the world we inhabit. So be it. But we are called not to participate in the spirit of consumerism, but to be different from it. We are called to be citizens of the New Jerusalem, another city, a better city, the city of God, the kingdom of heaven. We participate in the New Jerusalem even while we're living in the midst of Babylon. And again, this is not about leaving your business. It's not about giving every cent away. It's about creatively thinking about how do I respond and move against the spirit of consumerism even while I'm living in this culture. There's a guy in our church who owns and runs a landscaping business. And he's built it up really well. It's a very successful and profitable business from what I understand. And he, as he oversees a staff team, he meets each week, I think it is, with another group of Christian business people at a similar stage and age to him, uh, operating in similar types of environments. And they ask each other a series of questions each week in order to keep themselves accountable. They ask questions like, what kind of boss have you been this week? What kind of employee have you been this week? How have your workplace practices been? Have you treated people with real dignity as human beings made in the image of God? Where's your heart? Is it being subtly led astray? Are you finding that you are having an obsession with the bottom line at the expense of other things? How are your time commitments and practices? Is your family being sacrificed? Is your devotion to God and spiritual practices being sacrificed in some way? How's your heart doing? How's your walk with God doing? How are you outworking your faith and embodying the gospel in your workplace? You see what he's doing? He's not coming out of his workplace. He's being a different person within it. He's living in the kingdom of God even while he's living and working in the midst of this business. Brilliant example of coming out of Babylon even while living in Babylon. I think a good word to, to use here is the word subversion. Subversion means to work against or to undercut or to undermine. It's not about trying to overthrow governments or social systems. It is about living subversive life. Coming out of Babylon means we live, live subversively. And we find ways, everyday ways, to move against the grain of our culture, to practice resistance, to practice subversion, to practice non-participation in the empire that we live in. So as we wrap up, let me just give you a few practical examples of what this could look like in your life and mine. Number one, choose to live simply in one area of life. Maybe every area of life is too much for now. So practice one, one area. Choose one thing. Maybe your TV, maybe your cars, maybe your lounge suite, and consciously decide we don't need to just get the next. We don't need to get the bigger. We don't need to get the better. In this one area, we are going to practice simplicity. We're going to get something that is functional and basic that will do the job, and we're going to be content with that. This is not about being some super humble person. This is not about being some ascetic monk. This is about teaching your heart some new tricks. 
It's about teaching your heart not to be greedy, teaching your heart that it doesn't always need everything that everyone else has and it doesn't need everything that your heart desires, but it can be content. It is about pulling these virtues, these biblical virtues of contentment and simplicity into our lives in the 21st century in practical ways by looking at our stuff and saying, how can I really practice simplicity? Secondly, practice gratitude regularly. Thank God for the stuff you have. Name some stuff that you've got. We'll always be focused on what we don't have and what needs repairing and upgrading and replacing, but thank God by name for some stuff you've got. Thank you, Lord, for my... I've got a house, a roof over my head. Thank you that I have some furniture in this house. Thank you that we have two cars for our family to get around in. You start saying these words and praying these things, it begins to awaken you to the reality of all you do have, the amazing privilege, the fact that what we have is graciously given to us by God. Sometimes in our family, when we say grace, we should do this more often, but when we say grace, we mention sometimes the fact that others in the world don't have enough. Thank you, God, for this dinner that we've got tonight. And we recognize that there's many people in the world today that don't have enough food on their dinner tables tonight. And we pray that you would provide for them just as you've provided for us. You know what that's doing for our kids? Gradually raising awareness. Gradually raising them not to be defined as a consumer but to be defined as a child of God with a bigger perspective and a bigger awareness of the world they live in and how they can live for God within that, given the needs of the people around them and far from them. Thirdly, be slower to upgrade or replace stuff. Just steady on. I know, as soon as the iPhone 5 comes out, the iPhone 4S just looks so useless. And again, nothing wrong with going and buying the iPhone 5. But just slow down. Do you really need to upgrade quite so quickly? Just don't allow yourself to be a pawn in the marketing game. Don't be a slave to advertising. Make your own decisions. Think critically. Think in a kingdom and a biblical way. Use things until they pass their functional value, not just their fashionable value. Hold on to stuff. And when you do get to the point of replacing something, think about giving away the thing that you are replacing. See, trade me has convinced us all that we can make a buck off anything we own. And for the most part, we can. But I think in some ways it has contributed to greed. Because we look at our stuff now and, oh, I could get 10 bucks for that. You know, maybe 50 for that. Anything that we own, we will stick it up there and we'll just try and get all we can from it. What about the idea of taking something and giving it away? And if you don't have someone in your life that you could give that fridge away to that you're upgrading or replacing, refugee services will often take stuff. Salvation Army will often take stuff. Church office can give you a list of agencies and organizations that will take things and give them to people that really need them. Maybe that is a way of practicing the virtues of the kingdom in a consumptive culture. And it leads to the last point, which is practice generosity. There is no more countercultural virtue in a consumptive society than generosity. The empire of consumerism doesn't want you to be generous. It wants you to be acquisitive. But give money away and share stuff. It's an excellent way to go. Be a generous person. Don't be so tight-fisted that you just hold on and become a stinge. Be open-handed. Freely give to other people. It'll teach you to loosen your grip on your own finances, and it'll teach you to trust God who provides for every one of us. And learn to share your stuff. We've got some awesome neighbors, John and Abby Lang. They go to this church, and they share their lawnmower with us. When we moved in, they said, hey, we've got a lawnmower. Why go buy your own? You can just use ours anytime you want. Uh, you wish you had neighbors like that, don't you? You could move in on the other side. But they are, they are fantastic people, and what a neighborly thing to do. 
I'm thinking in return of possibly sharing my kids with them <laughs> at a time. That could be, uh, could be a good exchange. But what, what a wonderful practice of generosity and hospitality and just good old-fashioned neighborliness, you know, if that's a word. These are countercultural virtues, counterintuitive virtues in many ways. Ancient practices steeped in the scriptures that I think we need to draw into the 21st century and find creative ways of living and breathing this stuff in our everyday lives. We've got to find ways of coming out of Babylon, even while we live within it. Because as we look at this lament for Rome and Babylon, our response really should be the same as that of good old Ebenezer Scrooge. We should be crying out, show me that I can change these things by an altered life. That's where it should lead us. Not to just think abstractly about culture and systems and the world, but to think about me and what does this mean for me and how is God calling me to an altered life because of the reality that I see of where my culture is heading and the subtle grip that it has on my heart. We should be driven to lead an altered life, not because we have a social conscience, but because we're followers of Jesus who came to establish a new kingdom with a new allegiance in which we are called to live. And so may we, in everyday ways, may we get up each day and decide to leave Babylon again, decide to come out of her again. And through all kinds of tiny decisions, small steps, little actions, little subversive practices, may we move against the grain of consumerism. May we refuse to participate in its system May we refuse to worship its gods. May we refuse to be defined the way that our world wants to define us and be squeezed into its mold. But may we be defined by citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Learn to practice the virtues of simplicity, generosity, hospitality, gratitude, contentment. These things that are steeped in the kingdom of heaven. May we live confidently and courageously and creatively within the kingdom of God, even while we're living in Babylon. Let's pray. Father, we just take a moment to allow your spirit to speak to us. God, it's so easy to make excuses. It's so easy to rationalize. It's so easy to justify. But I pray, Spirit of God, you'd search our hearts and show us if there are ways in which we are participating in the spirit of consumerism. God, in this moment of quietness, and we just have so few of these moments, God, I pray that you would convict us if our hearts are full of greed. If greed has got a hold in our heart, then show it to us, Jesus, right now, I pray. Whether or not we see it, whether or not we think it, God, just show it to us. If there are ways in which we're running after money or stuff instead of you. Jesus, we confess those things to you now. We confess all the way that our world has got such a hold in our heart and we've been absorbed into it. We haven't been distinct. And Jesus, give us the courage to come out of Babylon. Lay on our hearts now the things that we need to change, not in a legalistic way, not in a moralistic way, but because we love you, because you've died for us to bring new life and a new kingdom and a new way of being human. Jesus, help us to resist the pull of our consumer culture. Help us instead to be utterly consumed by you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.
This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.